Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. This is the first podcast of our third season. Our guest is Aaron Moulton, a curator and anthropologist based in Denmark. His research examines the way creative expression is purposed and managed through different traditional and non-traditional means, ranging from New Age spiritual communities, the global art world, and propaganda initiatives. He's the curator of The Influencing Machine, a large-scale exhibition and publication examining the legacy of the Soros Center for Contemporary Arts Network, which took place at the Uzdowski Castle Center for Contemporary Art in Warsaw in 2020 and Galeria Nicodim in Bucharest in 2019. As a background for the discussion today, Aaron's recent work covers how in the 1990s, a network of 20 Soros Centers for Contemporary Art sprung up across Eastern Europe. This included capitals from all over the Soviet Union to include Budapest, Belgrade, Kiev, Ljubljana, Sarajevo, Tallinn, Warsaw, Zagreb, and many more. These centers, funded as their name suggests by George Soros Open Society Foundation, had as their mission the cataloging of dissident pre-1989 art and the introduction of new forms of artistic practices to the scenes of post-Eastern Bloc states and their artistic expressions. Within a decade, these centers wound up their operations and their histories have been all but forgotten except through Moulton's work here. More importantly, he discusses how these centers made their mark on Eastern European art, societies, and even political practices. I welcome Aaron Moulton to Savage Minds. Your work touched off so many issues for me that were actually happening in a different matrix for me because I was working in other parts of the world. I studied under Vincent Crepanzano. I've done ethnography of violence, suicide bombers in the West Bank, imploding buildings in Morocco, and that disappeared grandchildren in Buenos Aires. And I'm very interested in what your project, The Influencing Machine, adds to this discussion of social engineering within societies by those people who can. Now, I watched the video that you said, you know, 30 minutes to watch your presentation of your project, The Influencing Machine, that you gave in 2020. It was an online conference. And you are telling people who are very much a part, one of the people especially, Maria Lavalova, who runs the BIK in Utrecht, and who back in the day ran the Source Center for Contemporary Arts in Bratislava. You're presenting this group of people in this online conference information while at the same time you're letting this one person who was part of the very paradigm you're examining understand that in a way they were part of a cult, a socially engineered project. And as you wrote me in the email to watch it, I did. It's phenomenal because she had the chance to push back and disagree with you. Can you explain what ensued in that discussion? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. And thank you for having me and uh, and for watching that too. It's a uh... I think that's a really pivotal conversation that I got to have that um, firmed up a lot of my feelings, uh, which were already in place. But, you know, it's always important to be able to test these ideas out in public. Um, you know, this uh, this is a, a very delicate story because it's it's really uh, something where you have to be so sensitive to original intentions and, and what people's frames of mind were when they're participating in such a thing. And I think it's unfair to uh, go and declare all the artists, uh, for example, were fully manipulated by this thing, 
or that the curators were full-on manipulators. I think that a lot of the uh, participation in this was based on goodwill. And, uh, and it's only in retrospect that we're able to, to tighten the focus and really look at what these things actually meant and mean. Um, and when it comes down to what my work and my project represents, uh, ultimately, you know, I'm doing the, the job that they did, uh, except to them. And, uh, and that's, of course, you know, could be seen as hurtful or colonial, or we can put a lot of labels on it that somehow try to discredit it. But ultimately, it's a it's a research study that's very much based in their own methodologies and trying to create uh, patterns and understand cultural uh, energies that in the same way that they were doing, uh, but just as a as a historical preservation of of their own work and uh, and and learning from that work. You know, how did that work create and control cultural production? So when I confront them uh, with this um, within the frame of my research. You know, ultimately, it's to uh, hit them with a, 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 a with their own context. Uh, try to, you know, one thing I try very hard to do is I I try to start off right away and and not allow this to be simply described as art because I think that's a that's kind of like a, a Trojan horse or uh, it's somehow a red herring uh, to or a diversionary tactic when we use these these labels, calling this simply art and the support of art. Uh, it's a way to soften your mind's perception of things because how could you not like something that was supporting a bunch of art? Um, and uh, we do have to call it things like social engineering. We do have to call the whole effort something like that's very cult-like. Um, uh, and uh, and so for me, yeah, it was an amazing opportunity to look at my data in front of them and use the language I've created in, uh, to them and, you know, and wait for the pushback. And when it doesn't happen, it's only reinforcing, honestly, everything I've been doing. And it's not just with this incident with Maria Hlaviova. Uh, I've done this multiple times. I've, uh, I've amassed an enormous uh, oral history archive uh, where I've interviewed all the main people from the inner circle of this thing. And I always test out my ideas. I always ask them about how they're looking at art and a special way and how they compare this to histories of social engaged practice. And, um, and nobody pushes back really. People of course shudder at the term social engineering, um, but they don't, but they ultimately know it is what it is. I've gone through your online curatorial exhibit. It's beautiful. It's really amazing. And I noticed several things that resonate for me within the art world. I did my postgraduate work, all of it, in New York City. So I was in the thick of the art world from the late 80s through the 90s. And one thing I did notice was the shift from those who would leave the medium that they were in, painting, sculpture, what have you, and they shift to what was then a burgeoning new medium of multimedia art. In your project, you show how this was artificially, in a way, I'm, I'm not quoting you, but artificially planted through these centers. And I'm wondering, where you have the processes in the U.S., let's say, of applying for art grants, or even what I did for my Ph.D., applying for you know, doctoral grants to do my Ph.D. research, we're all aware that there are certain key words that will allow us to get that funding more likely than not including those keywords. And I'll give you my own example. I included the word gender and post-colonial 
and I happen to have been working on postcolonialism. I happen to have been doing a critique of gender, but I had to include it in a way that would be positively embraced by those funding me. And I did get a lot of grants because of the way I worded my applications. And I'm just wondering if you might speak to what some people will say, well, is this really social engineering or isn't that everywhere in the art world? Where if you write an application, you want to do a DIA foundation project, then you're going to have to include certain things that they're looking for, right? I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is a kind of a gamification of the open call systems and the way the grants are written. And that's, a, of course, a necessary survival practice. You adapt your language and, uh, and you make and convert your practice into something that translates to their desire. Um, I think we have to look at the, the origins of that a little bit, the origins of those protocols, and, uh, and try to remember how they become um, aggressive in, in how they create forms of inception with uh, the way an artist's process is suddenly shifted out, outside of their normal framework into what is now an NGO's framework. Um, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is this idea of new media um, as we know it. Uh, there's a lot of questions of, of how that kind of comes into being and what, what, what is the, who's hedging on that, uh, who, who's winning from that. The, certainly the, the, if we focus just on the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network and the Open Society Institute's network, uh, that's a wonderful case study to just allow total focus on. I can't speak to the entirety of the art world but I gotta imagine these things are intertwined. So the Open Society Institute, is, of course, is an enormous NGO. It's not your typical NGO. It's got uh, 10 plus um, you know, arms like an octopus of, of focus that it is focused on from uh, education, political lobbying, political science, uh, healthcare, uh, and, and contemporary art was just one of those uh, and, a, and a very small uh, portion of the money was going towards it, but technically for the time, uh, an enormous amount of money, $24 million was spent uh, in, on the total uh, Soros Center network um, in the 90s, which is huge when we think of the dollar value in Eastern Europe. But, um, but what's another part of the Open Society Institute is the internet, um, what's called the um, internet research, uh, damn, I'm going to forget the name of it right now, but they had, um, an, uh, they created a whole IT revolution in, uh, Eastern Europe and, um, and, and they had a, a, an enormous aspect of their work was to, uh, introduce the internet to all these different places and do so by any means necessary. So you have like this incredible on the boots on the ground, uh, creation and management of infrastructure. So you're laying fiber optic cables, you're, you're setting up satnet connections. And in some cases, uh, and, and there's an amazing book I recommend everyone read because it, it actually, I look at it as like a weird backdoor to understanding, to understanding the value of the art question. Uh, and it's this book called The Dynamics of Technology for Social Change. It's by Jonathan Pizer. And he was the, uh, the chief technology officer of the Open Society Institute. And he openly in this book just lays it out like case studies and you know, identifying mutations and anomalies of what it meant to use technology as a facilitator of social change. And each city uh, has its own set of challenges and its own set of um, unique successes. 
Um, and uh, and so I'm saying this as a way to let's keep this in mind. This is happening on the side. And, uh, and this is enormous because they view the internet as this irreversible, uncontrollable, unpredictable communication technology that if, uh, if put in place was going to create irreversible change uh, in these places where you know, there was a closed society, suppressed points of view. And so if you put this thing in place, it's just going to uh, light the fire. And, um, and so, and, but it's not to be misinterpreted as these were public internets. These were very much semi-public and more or less private internets that were run through the Open Society Institute and very much under the sensorial control of the Open Society Institute. So there were, were not, let's say all points of view represented. Um, but the, the reason I bring that up is because that is just one aspect of the Open Society Institute in addition to the art thing. And then you have to take into consideration how much of a hedge financially George Soros put into the internet, uh, the dot-com boom uh, and the dot-com bust, you know, uh, and as well as into the Euro. Uh, he, he hedged huge on the, the Europeanization process in both uh, 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 this kind of growth of the globalization in terms of tech and community. So, um, and the new media thing is another one of these funny, um, I, I don't know, ways to camouflage this whole thing as, a, as just a goodwill effort. Because yes, it was an incredible thing what they did providing firsthand and unprecedented access to new media technologies in places where, you know, uh, it was, you know, impossible to buy a video camera for the, the a monthly wage or a yearly wage one would normally have you're suddenly given unfettered access to incredible technological advancements um, which um, are you know interesting uh, when we think of the the big you know push behind all of this and what what did it represent where where did it go outside of the uh, development of uh, just some, you know, some some art productions. I mean, and then we have to then remember that artists are very frequently exploited for their abilities to beta test and uh, and uh, and you know create systems interfaces for things like the internet, for things like you know video editing softwares. For you know, artists are ultimately going to be the the bug finders uh, in all of these things or the the map makers. And so, um, and, and we know that because of what we just saw with NFTs, uh, we can, and what we, what we see all the time with what's happening with AI right now, all the things that have just happened in the last two years of AI going public with all the AI art stuff, um, that is from the total and absolute exploitation of analog creators. So there's there's all these questions that I'm you know using the word exploitation uh, is is a hard word, but this is the these are the breaks you know artists often sign up for this stuff. Your work focuses on a specific period post crumble of the Soviet Union. Can you talk a bit about why you chose that specific period of time? I believe it was ninety two to ninety five, and some of the findings from this project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, my, uh, this is, it's, I'm a random person to be working in this field. Uh, I'm a curator by trade. Um, and my practice is, I've always seen it as, as, as anthropology. I use curatorial practice as a, as a guise or a mask that helps rationalize my research and my behavior. Um, but I, uh, early on, uh, start my 
you know, my own kind of path through journalism and, uh, and through being a, a very much a nerd about the global art world and, uh, and the globalization of art and understanding the growths of different ecosystems, um, you know, and, and, and always looking for mutations and anomalies. I was always looking for these things, even before I knew exactly what, you know, to put those simple words on them. You know, I was always looking for things that went outside my comfort zone, frames of reference, uh, new words, Etc. Uh, and that's where you know, and that's why contemporary art is so amazing. It's this like last green zone for madness in society, and where we can expect to find you know such strange gray um, you know things of, of of you know known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And um, so um, the reason this happens is because I was a, I was running a magazine called Flash Art International, and I. Uh, you know, we do focus issues. Uh, this was in 2005. We do focus issues and on um, different regions. And uh, and I generally had a magazine that had a desire to have a broad, the broadest spectrum of international focus of all magazines at that time. So I was always having uh, a very open look at different uh, artistic communities outside the market. And um, and I just, I kind of latched onto Eastern Europe because it was right nearby. I was living in Milan and I just had not explored Eastern Europe. And it was, and, and so I, and I, and I realized the value of the coverage I was giving, you know, it could help uh, anybody. Uh, if you give them a review, give them, ex, you know, new funding for the next year, just from one review in flash art, you know, it could help rationalize an NGO's provision of new funding. Um, so anyway, sorry, all that aside, I kept finding this reference to this thing called the Soros Center for Contemporary Art. And, and I was, uh, and I, and I, right away I saw it and I was like, what is that? And I, the reason it my, it, it uh, piqued my curiosity was because I felt very aware of, of, of such things, uh, like the brands, let's say, of, you know, the Guggenheim setting up in these different countries or the Louvre or whatever. That's what was, that was what I was doing was like looking at how these uh, things mushroom and, and colonially impose themselves in other places. And so when I suddenly see this brand, Soros Center for Contemporary Art, I was like, well, that's interesting. And I didn't know what Soros was. And I, but I kept Googling it and you'd find more and others. And, um, and it was just, it was clear that it was this thing that appeared. And then that kind of existed maybe still today in 2005, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy for me to understand. So I basically created an entire research project as a journalist to just go to these places. And um, I went to 10 of these cities to, to explore the arts infrastructures and figure out what the, the meaning of the Soros network was in especially you know, years on, what their infrastructures were like, how they developed. Um, then 10 years later, 15 years later, I, I get activated to turn this research, which had always stayed in my mind, uh, this, this thing, which I saw as an anomaly more than a mutation, uh, a, a very unprecedented anomaly, because you realize when you dig into them, there were 20 of these things. There weren't just like five, like the Guggenheim, but there were 20 Soros Centers for Contemporary Art in every major capital in Eastern Europe uh, as soon as the, the, the fall of communism happens. And... And so for me, that was extraordinary. And uh, because they're carrying the same name, they must be carrying the same point of view. And, um, and so the, uh, the reason I focus on 92 to 95, when I turn this into a very serious research project, 
because uh, it was always a fascination for me for you know a decade. I just kept it in my mind as this great anomaly, and I ended up working with artists, representing artists, you know, always kind of uh, working within Eastern Europe as a context. But um, 92 to 95 is essentially when the network springs up. And, um, and it, it's like, you, it's this sudden mushrooming, uh, 92, 93, 94, 95, uh, the, all the centers pop up. And then a couple continue to pop up up until about 98. 98 is when the El Kazakhstan opens. And, and then already at that point, the centers are starting to close or funding is starting to go away. Uh, where they're in what's called the sunset years. 92 to 95 are important because this is when they are arguably the most vulnerable to being um, a unified voice uh, versus their mission, which was to be autonomous centers operating within the region. And, uh, and so uh, meaning they're in many cases, uh, when you interview the people that ran these things, they didn't know uh, what a contemporary art center was, what it was supposed to do. Uh, and some of them didn't know what contemporary art was, and many of them didn't know what a curator was. So they were all uh, graced with this incredible privilege and power and asymmetric funding to uh, change the world, ultimately. And um, and so the reason 92 to 95 is so special is because they're wayfinding and they need to have the path shown to them. And so you see there's this incredible ability once you read... Um, once you put their histories back together, the, and I'm talking about their exhibition histories primarily, but I think somebody could do a greater job and put uh, you know, the entireties of these things back together. Um, I, I, so I made these, um, I made a whole research archive where I put back together the, more or less the entire histories of, of each of them, but I focused primarily on their exhibition histories. And, uh, and when you see the exhibition histories of 20 of these things in a timeline, uh, you can start to lay them over each other and you see patterns in their programming. Can you discuss some of the patterns there? Because I started to see some similarities. And I was just wondering if you could go over some of the repetitions that do occur in these years. Yeah, yeah. They, um, so in 93 um, is when you really kind of can see them. Uh, you see the emergence of the most advanced form of socially engaged practice that we've ever seen on planet earth and uh and this is special because arguably one can say this is happening uh the whitney biennial happens in 1993 and there's a couple other things that we can say are happening in 1993 that the soros people might have been privy to in an advanced way but this stuff is unnatural uh it's artificially inseminated in uh eastern europe there's not a natural uh the proclivity to lean towards socially engaged practice, community-based practice, once you've come out of communism and uh, these closed society structures, you're not gonna readily trust groupthink. So, um, and then on top of that, um, to be told to criticize the government is also something you should be suspicious of as an, in an early stage, you know, to be having this privilege to criticize the government. There's, and then on top of that, to step outside of your ego, um, this is the other thing. Uh, these artists were asked to think outside of their um, their their studio-based, uh, you know, uh, uh, individual creative, 
creative genius and think into the community, look at social consciousness as a medium. So this is the first and biggest uh, you know, pattern we can say is there's this emergence of socially engaged practice. Um, and then that is deployed through the emergence of, I think, one of the most advanced typologies of the curator that we've ever seen. So I would argue that this is the emergence of curatorial practice as we know it, because a lot of these curators become teachers and adjunct faculty at all the curating schools, which are just appearing at the same time. So you have the emergence of socially engaged practice and the emergence of, of curatorial practice. And then within these, there's great case studies. I mean, I can go into them if you want, um, but th these are the two biggest points. And then my third uh, research point is the emergence of tactical media, um, which is employed through this. And, and so then when we look at that in the framework of the network, again, think of this map, 20 major cities, every major city in Eastern Europe, turn it on. You have all of them synchronized. Boop. Uh, that happens in 93, 94, 95. You can see it. And it's, it's undeniable. And these are unnatural that a, these practices would occur there, and B, that they would that ideology travels that quickly, especially in former closed societies in an analog era. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of social engaged practice, there's this exhibition uh, called Polyphony, which happens in Budapest, and uh, it's it's mainly a public art. It's, it's meant to be in, uh, a thing that happens within the museum, and then it ends up happening due to uh, political difficulties in uh, public space. And it all kind of uh, is uh, uh, focused around um, the, the pretty incredible ideas of socially engaged practice that are, I think, uh, we have to look uh, at how these exhibitions formed through the open calls and they, they, these open calls kind of function like a manifesto where they encourage, if not arguably coerce artists to, uh, to shift and make their practice around these things. So this art exhibition polyphony, um, if you don't mind my reading briefly from the open call, uh, it's, it's asking artists, um, the, so this is an open call that's sent out in March of 1993. And then this exhibition kind of happens in October and it happens all throughout in public spaces uh, in Budapest. And, um, and I will argue that no one saw this exhibition uh, because it happens in public space and it happens at a time when there's like low visual literacy towards what is contemporary art. And then on top of that, the mission of polyphony is to make artworks that could not be readily perceived so i.e invisible so there's this there's layers of why this thing was probably never actually seen and therefore it just becomes an experiment in perception um, but the 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 open call here says the range of social and political themes which may serve as the content of the submitted works extended to but is not restrict, uh, restricted to the following the transformations of power broadly defined, the reevaluation of social roles, expectations, customs, and systems of value, the tensions of collective belonging and dispersal, orientation in the new objective ideology, emotional and temporal environments, uh, transformations of sexual and gender relations, a mapping of geographical, social, and institutional spaces for movement, the, in, the adequacy or inadequacy of the cultural, linguistic, and symbolic means available in this changed reality, a sense of responsibility for human and environmental resources, the problems of processing a private and shared past, present and future, and the social and public role of fine arts in answering challenges like the above. So 
in addition to the open call, which is asking you really to look at your social environment for all these these problems to to what's called have uh, use social consciousness as a medium is how the exhibition was described. Um, they're also giving unfettered access to new media technologies and uh, tutorial grooming to help use them. And th we're not talking very simply just uh, video. We're we're talking about uh, TV. Uh, you know, like being able to hack phone lines, uh, public phone networks using uh, these. Uh, billboard uh, led billboard advertisements using a whole range of media that already the public is uh in terms of you know led billboard advertising that's going to be a, a relatively new thing in general uh but to have that to allow that to be hacked already by artists is, is pretty uh you know we know that jenny holzer is doing that in new york at the same time but but this is a this is a very different environment uh in terms of visual literacy exposure to advertising marketing the tricks of tactical media etc so this is an exhibition where we can argue artists are being put in the field to engage different communities and different paradigms of perception that are very unfamiliar and uncommon generally, and especially in these places, and then given uh, pretty uh, sophisticated access to advanced technology to do it. Um, and then, um, yeah, and that's so that's the social engaged practice one. And then I can, and, and I think that arguably also touches on curatorial practice, but I can give you another wild example of curatorial practice. But uh, in terms of curatorial practice, this is an exhibition about bureaucracy and how artists, and, and particularly the curators, were going to engage all different manners of bureaucracy to make this stuff happen in public space. And we're talking about a former closed society that's got vulnerable bureaucracy. And so what does this do? Well, this opens up uh, a very clear understanding of what those vulnerabilities are. And in my opinion, allows the possibility that then the larger NGO can perform hygiene. So it can understand where the, the, the vulnerabilities are, the core problem areas are, like, are they sensitive to us using this public square? Why are they sensitive to this, to this monument? You know, it's, it's not easy for me to say there's a clear overlap of agenda and the use value of the data of the SCCA for the open society, but it has to be questioned. I think it has to be questioned as a, a definite, you know, gold mine when you have uh, artists coming in like a Trojan horse versus an NGO. What is your distinction between an NGO then and the Open Society Foundation? Because I would view the Open Society Foundation as a as an NGO. Yeah, I think like this NGO term is um is intentionally um, misleading. I think uh, I think we have to look at it the way we uh, the way I'm talking about art. Like I I don't I I right away recontextualize it. Let's not talk about this as art because it's going to uh, manipulate your perception um, of how you think about it. Like it's the way we use that word cookies to talk about all the data gathering that we agree to immediately when we go online, which is actually probably quite nefarious. And but it's given these special names. Like who doesn't like cookies? And so, um, so we uh, NGO is non governmental organization. Uh, well, gosh, man, that sounds like a, a good thing. Uh, it's not the government, which is in uh, in the birth of the NGO. It's really trying to respond to these ideas of extreme left and extreme right of communism and fascism. Um, and they're just operating in between in an anti-political space is the way they describe themselves. It's anti-political, not political. But of course, we learn uh, very quickly that they are incredibly political. Their agenda is extremely political in everything they're doing because they are the nuts and bolts of social engineering we associate with neoliberalism. And so 
Um, the Soros uh, Network, or sorry, the Open Society Institute Network, um, I would argue is a super NGO. It's not a normal NGO. Normal NGOs uh, have a limited capacity or a, a specific focus of, of, of helping you know, different specific humanitarian causes. Uh, whereas the Open Society Institute is hitting so many buttons in terms of what it's trying to accomplish that um, it goes really outside of our uh, scope of, of how we understand what these things are. And, and I think we should identify it like that. Uh, we should not allow it this simple name NGO because that oversimplifies it and, uh, and allows it in a little bit too easy uh, or lets it off a little bit too easy. And, um, and so NGOs, um, yeah, I mean, are there to uh, technically be watchdogs in society, especially the Open Society Institute um, is, a, is a literally a watchdog that's going to do checks and balances on all kinds of things from, uh, you know, making sure healthcare is in good order, uh, government uh, voting is, is uh, legitimate. And, and these are all good things. They're all technically, I'm not saying they're bad things, but we have to watch the watchmen very occasionally because these guys don't, they are not accountable to um, the same legal issues. Uh, NGOs, are above the government. I think that's the way we have to look at them. They are super governmental. They are above the government. They are not subjected to the same uh, 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 regulations that uh, government institutions are. In fact, they tell you how to regulate. So like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League in America is an NGO. Nobody can regulate on them, even though they arguably um, can kind of be seen as perpetuating the discourse of hate when they're technically there to curtail it or, uh, you know, perform acts of hygiene around how we understand hate speech, you know, they, uh, they don't get enough, uh, you know, they should get an anthropological um, accounting uh, done on them and in relationship to what their perceived function is, and how that actually works through independent data gathering about how it actually looks like what it is they're doing versus what they're doing. And so this is this is what I see as the problem of NGOs is they are super governmental forces that were put in place uh, in these vulnerable periods uh, in, in, the, in, in the, uh, talking about Eastern Europe in a time when we can say they were needed um, where in, in these transition periods when they were needed, but 30 years on, I don't think they're necessary. And this is my opinion, but I think we could argue that NGOs in Eastern Europe are actually hindering the transformation process at this point because they have um, their own mafias of power that they've created that are again super governmental and they are like a, almost a political party unto themselves. And the Open Society Foundation still has some hold in many of these countries. Enormous. I was invited, and we're going to have a degree or two of separation, I believe, when I start mentioning names here. Super. I was invited to lecture at the AICA in Yerevan many years ago. A good friend of mine, Neri Malkonian, said, I can't attend this summer. She had something going on in New York. And she said, would you like to be part of the curatorial program? And you basically give lectures to the students. Da, da, da. I went. And it was a lovely program. I didn't realize until I think the second time I was invited that it was funded by the Open Society Foundation in part. I believe mm -hmm. the Ford Foundation as well, but mm -hmm. don't quote me on this. And this gave a generation of not just Armenian, all over the Eastern Bloc curators to come and hone their practice, their theories, etc. 
And there were many people that I met from this who have gone on to do some amazing work in the art world. It has really informed a lot of the way that I've thought about political framing from within the art world and this kind of, uh, how to say it, input from what NGOs offer, which is essentially financial support for areas like Armenia, where they would not have it otherwise. And these are very poor countries. And I can't even imagine the kind of money that they were looking at in 92 in the area era that you were examining post-collapse of the Soviet Union, what was the per capita income? <laughs> you know, These mm -hmm. grants were huge because I believe today, I remember a, a doctor writing me a couple of years ago saying that the average salary that she and others received in Bulgaria was something on the order of 80 euro a month. So yeah. I can only imagine that if these artists and not even artists there could have been people who were not then artists seeing calls for art projects saying oh i'll be an artist because the money was a great incentive to go into this new field you and i have tej logar in common oh. he was one of the students that studied in the session where i was first lecturing there was angela harut union oh yeah she was just beginning her phd at the time and oh, there's a whole slew because they were coming from every single one of the countries that you have studied in fact and it was what struck me about this, though, and this isn't a criticism of the program itself, but this is probably a criticism, in fact, of what we're discussing, re Sor Soros, because I have other criticisms about the Open Society Foundation, far afield of the art world. But what struck me was the mentioning of gender. Now, I was pregnant, so I do know the year that I went there to give lectures, and that was 2006. I was an assistant professor at the Université de Montréal. I went there that summer. I remember hearing the word gender everywhere. And I kept thinking, how has this made its way here? And we're not talking gender trouble, gender only, Judith Butler. But there was this focus of framing gender in a way that was uniquely coming from the West. I saw very little inflection of Eastern European anything, okay? It was cut, copy and paste, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I became immediately, I don't want to say skeptical, but my eyebrows were raised and curious. Yeah. Over the years, because I was invited several times there, my discussions became more and more and more developed because the last time I was there, I had already left academia and was right on the gender wars in London and what has been going on for the past over decade, but definitely the past decade, of what has gone on with gender identity becoming this ripping apart of sex, the decimation of sex. I'm going to give you the spoiler now. I've done a lot of research on the funding of this within major media. The Open Society Foundation has funded The Guardian loads of money to cover issues on gender identity. This society is not the only one. But yeah, I'm yeah. finding that these kinds of socially engineered narratives and I say it very obliquely, perhaps for some people, but I always wonder what <laughs> if there were a heaven and we could see people like Frederick Douglass in the sky looking down at us and thinking, oh, my God, all we had to do was claim to be women. And then everyone would have been sympathetic to us. It wasn't enough to be a slave, because what we've seen in the flash of very little time is a lot of people having the claim to being oppressed and to wanting ex-human rights and X rights and the decimation of women's and children's rights, as is currently the case in many countries. And all it takes is to claim to be part of the oppressed class, which is a very neoliberal narrative mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it is actually coming from a 
the social engineering of major media that never interrogates this. It's very sad to me to say, and you'll see me saying this sometimes, and it's crazy that I'm, I'm having to say this, but the only major legacy media covering critical aspects of gender identity, for instance, is Fox News. I mean, how sad is that that we've got that now we're living in the era of post Russia gate where we've seen a lot of that kind of engineering. Oh, the Biden laptop and all the fake news stories that were allowed to disseminate and allowed to sit there on the Internet with no addendum, no apologia from editors, nothing. And more than a decade later. All the claims that the New York Times, the, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, etc., all these publications were allowed to run with certain lies. Again, these are the same publications pushing gender identity. And these are very neoliberal projects that put to the side class inequality, poverty. And it was very shocking to me, especially since lockdown, to notice that of all people speaking about this, it was Tucker Carlson. And I had to do a double take because I couldn't stand the face of that person 20 years ago mm -hmm. in the post 11 mm -hmm. era. We recall the infamous scene with Jon Stewart and him, but not just that one scene. The dissemination of news at Fox post 9-11 was quite mm, troubling. The global war on terror would never have gone forth had it not been for the collaboration with the quote unquote left, but they're not really that left, the Democrats, the neoliberal left, let's call it. So what I'm seeing here after having looked into the Soros Foundation's funding of gender identity, for instance, and promoting narratives that are even counter to science, counter to fact, but they, they work well if you're you know, Rachel Maddow, is there's a similarity in terms of these narratives that are being used from, in, I'm quoting your installation here, where you ask, will NGOs become the substitutes of governments? I have to say in a way they already are, yeah. because we're seeing so much power from these NGOs and other organizations that not, might not be officially non-government organizations, but they are charities of some form or another. I'm using the British term on purpose because that somehow sounds more sympathetic. These charities are able to push agendas, as we have seen, with all of the excellent journalism around the GRA in the UK that was pushed forth in 2004 without any consultation as to the detriment of children's rights. But now we're in this very strange space where you have men who've been, I'm just throwing this out there, accused and found guilty of raping an infant being put in a woman's prison mm -hmm. where other children are. This is how surreal the discourse is. There's a dislocation between what the right-wingers in the 80s might call the bleeding heart liberals, that kind of sympathy that I'm on the left, I'm very firmly on the left, but that kind of bleeding heart narrative of, well, let's just understand these people, let's just, they need more love, they need this, they need accommodation. But on the other side of this is this vehement refusal to see science and to see that the category of sex exists for a reason. It's not that I can just declare myself a man and suddenly I can be Arnold Schwarzenegger at deadlift weight, right? We're in this very strange space where the narrative of identity politics and the culture wars that you actually get at in your work is completely at odds with what the last three years would have been called follow the science, right? Well, um, I mean, you, you, hit a, you hit a number of things there. I think like what I would uh, <clears throat> generally want to just say 
is progress is an undefined thing. And I think it's intentionally obscure that the progressivism doesn't uh, uh, self-identify uh, what it what it, where it's, where is it going, uh, and and that's why uh, the 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 so-called needle shifts and and you or I could be liberal five years ago and suddenly we're center right you know today or something which I don't want to buy into these dualisms I'm 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 a bit concerned by how I see the the language constantly gamified and and used for different different forms of, of agenda and create uh, i think there's a uh, within everything you've said a lot of false false consciousness um in terms of how all these uh what the the neoliberal project has done to create little mini socially engaged uh, you know uh, social justice warriors uh fighting for you know some very idiosyncratic or large macro uh cause you know you ultimately have this thing that's um that's cannibalizing itself from within. Um, that's the, and that's the sad reality I think of the neoliberal project is that it was there to uh, stand in opposition of the open society and help perform hygiene to the, uh, or stand in opposition to the closed society and perform hygiene to eliminate it, the, to do this de-Sovietification process. Um, and now that that's done, uh, it's like a uh, it's like a cannibal. It's like a it's a very hungry beast that has uh, no boogeyman, and so it's constantly uh, looking to identify a boogeyman, and it's gonna con it's gonna basically do it from within. Uh, you you hear stories of like Amnesty International and all these different humanitarian aid or whatever groups that are are dealing with their own struggles of uh, of, of woke culture from within taking themselves down. Um, so I think. And I think that's the problem with George Soros's project is it didn't um, it didn't understand uh, life without an opposition um, and how it would create a lot of you know uh, hungry activists and because uh, the other thing that's I find troubling if to just keep it back in the arts um, you have the uh, this hyperbolic growth in uh, the curate, uh, curatorial practice as a as an education uh, industry. And you did not have that kind of growth in jobs. In fact, it was probably inverse. Uh, there, there was a blip of a, of a moment where we can say there was this biennial uh, boom and, uh, and then some private museums that have popped up in the last 10 years. But for the amount of, of curatorial master's programs that appeared in the last 20 years, there's definitely not enough jobs to give those, all those big expensive egos. And, uh, and, and so what do those people do? You know, they're all trained in post-colonial theory. They're gonna like, they're gonna claw hand over fist over each other to be the biggest activist in the face of an industry that's literally full of activists uh, saying the same shit. You know, they're all saying the same thing. And what does that mean when every activist in a, you know, when a, in a liberal leftist industry, if everyone's saying the same thing to each other, well, that's, you know, first of all, that's, that's called preaching to the choir and it's literally useless. Um, when you have that happening, you know, like we're all moralizing each other around the same issues. Um, it, I don't, I don't know what, uh, because it's not like this thing in the art world stretches that much outside of it. Yes, you can imagine, and that's what the nature of this project is. Uh, what I've done in, in Poland is to identify that this is propaganda. This is this is the creation of, of uh, museums of false consciousness, of memory politics, of. Uh, and these are the tactics and strategies for how our uh, heartstrings are manipulated. 
and uh, and it's through um, you know the astroturfing. This is the astroturfing of the art world uh, in in lar in you know in short. I completely agree with you on all counts. And I want to quote something that you write here. You write, there is an artist contract from the SCCA Moldova that stipulates that funding cannot be used for creating political influence, propaganda purposes, for interfering with a democratic election, legal processes, lobbying, or for promoting a particular political agenda. This contract is a great way to protect the network if anyone should audit their intentions in the future. In this way, the artist has been contractually advised to not make a political artwork, but instead to create a political artwork. Interesting. No one can stop the free will of the people, end quote. And this, of course, made me think a lot of the criticisms. I was working in Nicaragua in the late 80s when we had the Bush and right-wing funded Contra war there. And I was doing work with these poets in the islands of Solentiname who were creating this with the Sandin they were Sandinistas, but were creating this kind of revolutionary grassroots poetry projects where everyone was becoming alphabetized and they were writing poetry. There were even painting projects. It was quite phenomenal. You had right-wing Americans at the time, the likes of Jesse Helms, who were busy, of course, uh, censoring Mapplethorpe and Andre Serrano and on and on, uh, who were saying that what was happening in the Americas was tendentious. It was political. It was forced. It wasn't art. As they were saying, this isn't art. Piss Christ. Robert Mapplethorpe. Remember Jesse Helms' description of the mm -hmm. buttocks? And it's it's quite ironic because, you know, plus ça change, in a way, we've got this kind of blind side to our own political malfeasance, let's put it that way, where we had uh, Lloyd Benson at the time, I believe it was 1972, helped to author and pass a law in the U.S., which basically made it illegal for the U.S. to intervene in the policies and elections of other countries. Well, of course, we both know <laughs> this is not the case, right? So could you talk a bit about that, that quote I just read? Well, uh, yeah, and I think the, just to, you know, you, 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 I want to go through the map of things you just described there. I think, you know, this oligarchy term, um, it's it's a little bit like uh, patriotism and nationalism. You know, it's philanthropy versus oligarchy is almost like a, I mean, not that oligarchs are philanthropists by nature, but they're, you know, they're, whatever. It's like this these funny ways in which we create uh, the dualisms of, of uh, consciousness and good and bad with this. So I think like, and philanthropy is, a, is very much a, a, a karmic uh, industry in America especially, and uh, the way, you know, people use philanthropy as a way to um, hide their negative energy and by putting forth positive energy, uh, you know, be that through tax evasion, money laundering, exploitation of labor, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, think of any basic capitalist entrepreneurship. And, um, and, uh, and so, Philanthropy performs that great thing called the halo effect, which we can call the evil eye, uh, where it helps us look away from all the negative aspects of how that money was acquired through charitable donation. And so I think, and I think like, you know, the, the rad part about this story is like, why do we not celebrate George Soros for having been the single handedly the most important uh, philanthropist that's ever 
you know, helped create art in Eastern Europe. There's no recognition whatsoever for that. This is a black hole uh, for what his position represents in the history of Eastern Europe and, and, and how it's understood in the West. Nobody thinks of George Soros and, in, and contemporary art in the same sentence. It just does not occur. And yet he is standalone, the greatest of all time. And so um, that's one thing. The contract you brought up, is important um, because it is one of these um, smoking gun moments that I've been able to find in my creation of the archive that I created. And, um, and I would say that the great thing to do in addition to if, to, if we're comparing these languages the way you are of, of, of you know, how we see the responsibilities of intervention and, and the presences of NGOs in these places is to look at, um, how um, Russian NGOs are talked about in this way. And, there's, and I can't think of the names of them right now, but I read a great report from a think tank um, out of Sweden that was looking at Russian NGOs. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and, they, and then of course the, the framework that they're making is these are nefarious, they're coming in there to implement agenda and create influence. And then they go through how, and I'm like looking, I'm literally looking at this list I'm trying to look at it neutrally. And I'm like, well, that's exactly what the open society does. Like, how is this any different whatsoever? Because it, it carries a Russian agenda versus a private philanthropist, parentheses, neoliberal American imperialist agenda. I mean, what is the difference here? Is that it's, it's this good or evil narrative that we're constantly battling with. And, um, and, and, in, and the reality of it is it's the same. You know, they're, they're the same thing. Language is a way that people are trained to see things differently. So you're democratically elected leader, but they're oligarch, they're despot, they're tyrant. And we've seen that language, just to take the example of Putin, how he's framed differently depending on what he's doing, <laughs> what year it is, the same media. Uh, and we've seen it over and over. You can go back to what happened in Panama with Noriega, who used to be our BFF, and go back to, again, infamous photos of uh, Donald Rumsfeld with a very young Saddam Hussein from the 1970s, again, our then BFF, and on and on. And, and those of us who've studied this can recognize the way that language is used to entrance the reader. And this is how corporate media functions as well. I would actually point out the a really amazing way to look at it is the the rules for how the Ukraine war is talked about. Uh, the 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 successes of the Ukraine are 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 the only thing that is platformed in the media. Uh, and when they mess up, or when they when there's a failure, when there's accidental, when there's death in a way that was unintentional, there's this effort to make the language around the Ukraine successes and failures successful no matter what or accidental whereas they will never use language that russia is gaining ground or the the, the if, if i'm making myself clear there is a rule for how we're allowed to describe the successes and failures of these opposing sides and uh and the language around the Ukraine is inevitably optimistic, whereas the, it's uh, around Russia, it's full of folly, uh, it's uh, abandonment, uh, failure. They're very openly only using a very particular vocabulary to frame, a, a, to manage your perception around how the, the war is going, um, which I, I find interesting. You know, you can just, you can tally it when, in, when you read any article, you can see that there's this language game that's at work here. It's not about 
the actuality, you know, of any kind of democratic reporting or neutral reporting. It's about uh, playing with your sentiments and how you perceive this event. Just yesterday, and either the BBC or CNN, I saw just that. It was about Russia's advancement, but it was couched negatively, saying there are doubts about Russia's advancement. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But it's always like that. It's fascinating. Um, I wanted to also get to the way in which your work has been received, because I'll give you an example. When I wrote my first piece dealing with the Open Society Foundation's quarter of a million dollars funding of The Guardian to represent transgender identity, mm-hmm. I sent it to Jesse Singal and asked him if he could go over, if he had any input. And his response was that he didn't want to, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he didn't want to touch it with a barge pole because if you mention, if you criticize the Open Society Foundation or George Soros, you will be accused of anti-Semitism. Have you had that experience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've kind of had it a lot, but also it's like, I know it's uh, it's BS, you know? I know this is a, another language game. And uh, and, I, and I've built in all these kind of uh, tricks in my own game to, you know, identify it. And, and I think that's, and that's, that's what we need to start doing is calling these things games um, and uh, games of tactical media, perception management. Um, and uh, I even call them spells, you know, because when you look at how anti-Semitism as a call out culture works in society, it's a very primitive emotional mindset that uh, permits it. And, uh, and the, the, the effect is meant to be damning without any uh, accountability of the spellcaster and it's expected to just be this thing where they can just say it without any definition and mic drop and walk away and so uh and and i know my intentions are good uh i know that i'm not an anti-semite i know that if you look at what i'm doing actually you can understand that it does not matter uh so where why is it why is it why is this uh called anti-semitism what like what would be the basic the, the real simple one plus one reason why this is called anti-Semitism. And it's because George Soros is technically Jewish. That does not change his history and his actions. The fact that he is Jewish is, an, uh, is a detail that is used actively by the media as a diversionary tactic to manipulate your perception of this person. Um, and the media should be held more accountable for how they're doing these things. They're using words like in Soros's byline you can uh, do a random sampling of any newspaper article that mentions George Soros, and in the first, within the first uh, 20 words of his name, they'll use the word boogeyman, Jewish, billionaire, and uh, and and these are literally tricks. These are games to sweep your leg and uh, and and create what's called predictive programming and short circuit your mentality. So you, as a reader. If your moral compass is in the right place, you are going with the flow right away because who calls this amazing billionaire philanthropist activist um, a boogeyman? Well, the bad people do. And uh, and who uh, and so what you have is this uh, strange reality that uh, criticizing the the halo effect, uh, which is, again, another one of these tactical media games of philanthropy and uh, that the media uses. Um, uh, when you when you when you reveal these structures, it's seen as um, taboo, uh, as as if these aren't happening, as if these aren't cultural traditions. And so, um, so for me, 
I always say, bring it on. You know, I just want somebody, if they're going to use this terminology to defend themselves and actually substantiate what they need, because that's the biggest issue is that no one is forced into a public discourse about this stuff. They whisper it. They whisper it behind closed doors and to, 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 you know, to their networks and they write about it in one-sided media opportunities, but they never are forced to defend it. And the reason is because it's scary when they do. Uh, it's, it's, it's not because I am actually anti-Semitic. It's like, well, then you have to defend what you mean by anti-Semitism. And, and when I, what little experience I've had with forcing people to do that, it reveals that, you know, people do have a bizarre faith in things like the protocols of Zion, which is something that's probably going to cause this program to be censored just by my mentioning it. But um, this this project often and the criticism of George Soros often gets called um, the new protocols of Zion or a form of anti-Semitism akin with the protocols of Zion. And no one's willing to explain exactly what they mean by that because it would it's 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 frightening when when forced to actually do a uh, a discussion, a real discussion about origins of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic call-out and where those thoughts come from and why are we making those comparisons? Because that's a pretty hard uh, thing if we're going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, and uh, and so, my, and yeah, and I don't think I've done anything that's anti-Semitic uh, in my work. I've ultimately, uh, my work is somehow about anti-Semitism and it's about anti-Semitic call-out, but we just live in a culture that borderlines on primitive when it comes to speaking in a rational, educational, holistic way about these negative energies that it seems to cherish as a sacred cow in culture. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. When you use the term language games, of course, I immediately jump to Jean-Francois Lyotard's work in the postmodern condition and what he calls language games, although his definition is slightly different. But I'm wondering if there might be a tie-in to Lyotard's seminal work. He discusses these petits récits, these kinds of deconstructions of hegemonic narratives that become localized. Might we be looking at a present where because of social media, especially Twitter, people are given this one-offmanship. That's what Twitter is. It's for quick one-liners. And it's always about humiliating your interlocutor, never or rarely about an actual communication. We're in this very strange bell jar, I call it, where you go in, you say your one-liner, and you either get a lot of likes or that failed and try again later. Sorry, go go to jail and come back later. And I find these kinds of discourses almost useless, but they're certainly empty because we're not seeing an actual exchange of ideas. So what mm-hmm. I learn when I go to social media is that people share without reading, they discuss without reading. And then when they do read, they're often reacting emotively. And what happens on social media and this is why I think it's interesting how your work on the Open Society Foundation's influence in the 90s through technology, especially the burgeoning internet, is primal here. 
because it became this testing ground of what was supposed to be, remember, Lenier's, we're going to have this open democratic forum, but he's since come back on that and said, oh, it was a great disaster. The internet has not proven to be this great public space. It's become a global marketplace. It's become a public square where if you don't like what someone says, you threaten them, you write their employer if they have it in their bio. We've seen this all. People are using the internet in this castigatory manner, such that when you start to look at the gender wars, which are fascinating, you see regular death and rape threats by people who say, I'm a woman. Right. That's what women do. They rape threaten each other, not. You've seen a lot of people having to go to court over their right to have employment because they say that lesbians don't have penises, not exaggerating there. And you have a case I'm following from tomorrow in Canada. A nurse in British Columbia is being taken to task. There's a hearing because she says that biological sex is real. Yeah. I mean, you still can't finish medical school if you don't know that. Not in any country that I know of. And so you have this very strange mixture on the internet because it's virtual, because everyone who says that they're a woman is, has a Japanese anime, so you can't argue with a cartoon, can you? That now this is the new reality. It's this kind of LARPing as new scientific modeling as the new follow the science. And when I say that, I'm putting it in air quotes because as we're finding out from the Twitter files, the follow the science was a huge conspiracy and it was definitely a regulated and fictional regulation of a narrative. What was allowed to come out was allowed, whose voices weren't allowed, were kicked off the platform and or they were shadow banned mm -hmm. on Twitter. Their accounts were moved from Facebook. I have read peer-reviewed articles that had the rubber stamp even of the CDC that were then removed from Facebook for being fake news. Mm -hmm. I've had my account put under question for spreading fake news. I've spread peer-reviewed articles about lockdown, about masks, about all of it. Mm -hmm. And I often just post the articles because my Facebook wall is where I manage my readings. I don't find bookmarking on browsers helpful because I end up having 500 bookmarks open and that's not great. So I use Facebook as my to read list. It's fascinating how this kind of social engineering that you're discussing with the 1992 to 1995 frame of the Soros Foundation is actually, and I'm sure this is coincidental, but becomes this kind of unwilling model for what's happening today. We're seeing this kind of replication of theories that would never, I mean, if you had told someone 10 years ago, lesbians have penises, they would have been like, get the fuck out of here. Mm -hmm. But today, if you do not say lesbians have penises and you work in a certain sector, especially if you are of the managerial class to use an Adolf Reed analysis, you could find yourself unemployed. Look, there's a lot of things here. I think like the, I left America uh, four or five months ago because I just, I have two kids and I don't feel like it's a safe culture anymore. I think it's not just uh, culturally, but a physically unsafe place. You know, it's it's all going to collapse in my mind as soon as like Trump gets reelected or who knows. I don't even want to talk about that. But like the, but I think everyone is so um, demoralized uh, ultimately uh, by the the reality that we're constantly confronted with. You know, ultimately, when you are only uh, in uh, a, a culture that you're, you know, triggered uh, by 
you know, the, whatever, you know, the, the, it's, it's really hard because progressivism uh, in the democratic framework and the liberal framework, it only operates through negative uh, by, by negation. It only defines itself by negation. So it's only like what they don't want, you know, they never say what they want, but it's what they don't want. And so you as a progressive or as a liberal know that there's somebody that doesn't want whatever you want, even though we're not defining what that is. It's always through negation. And it's, and then the, and then the, the, when they reveal it, it's, oh, we just want equality and, and, and all that stuff, but never through the, the, you know, literally, you know, trying to help you reimagine what your vocabulary is every six weeks. And so, um, so I, th and then, then the result of that is, uh, is there's, uh, from this demoralization and, and this creation of, of, of sectarianism um, is uh, as we are in uh, almost like a, what you say about the follow the science thing is interesting because, you know, atheism and, um, and whatever the liberal project represents uh, has created these religious echo chambers of, of politics and science. Uh, and not that science ever promised finding God or uh, ever promised anything, but literally the way science is used to debunk everything and yet has so many uh, hypothetical ends uh, of its own to never be able to answer for, uh, shows us that we have invested in ultimately something that's not spiritually nutritious and yet people follow it with cult-like zeal. So, uh, and that's uh, also with politics, you know, people have invested all their spiritual energy into political movements and politics has become its own religion unto itself. And so there, and then, and then you combine that with the internet and the way we talk about what the, what the ambitions and the aspirations of the internet were back in the nineties versus today. I mean, George Soros himself is, uh, is of course, one of the people that helped pour gas on the evolution of this thing. And then at the same time has been the guy that wanted to try to reverse course when he saw social media becoming this monster that he never expected uh, in terms of how it's gonna come in and uh, cannibalize everything around it, especially his precious open society. So um, there's this, these incredible ironies to the religious, the religiosity of these energies and how they become like, you know, uh, witch burnings for each other. And, and I don't know, you know, I think like the sad part of society right now is uh, how spiritually bankrupt it is and, and how demoralized it is. I mean, when we talk about the Twitter files that you started talking with, it's like, I think, why aren't people talking about this more? And it's like, oh, they can't, they can't handle it, you know, because it's like, it really supports the fact that we're fucked, you know? Uh, the, that all this is a pure demonstration that you've just been taken for the biggest ride. All your energy has been literally instrumentalized as the 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 ACDC of of his you know hysteria, uh, and uh, and we're just constantly you know weaponized in this way to move left or right. And you see the Twitter files ultimately offering this clear uh, looking glass into. How that uh, how that hysteria was was used ultimately and uh, directionalized, and so when we when we relate it to uh, the story of the SCCA, like how how do these things relate? Well, you know, there's this funny thing um, happening off in little old Eastern Europe in the early '90s that no one in the art world, in the mainstream global art world, is uh, reckoning with, and uh, but this is planting the seeds of of, uh, of this whole social justice practice that is existing in contemporary art. And, uh, and not that those things wouldn't have happened maybe naturally, but they are definitely accelerated 
and beta tested in ways that we've never reckoned with uh, to, to give us you know, new possibilities. And then they get gentrified through the biennial movement and through uh, the curatorial education programs where all these people sat in as lecturers. So there is this real importance to do a, 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 an accounting and a checks and balances of our art history and see how much it means for our current cultural histories. Um, because we do these things only when they're like functioning for aspirational optimistic narratives. When we wanna say how great pop art was, how great conceptual art was for language or for the American Imperial project, you know, but when we suddenly see that art can actually be hijacked and used to uh, perform activism that goes beyond our free will, uh, then we're we're suddenly like, oh, that's that's scary. You know, how and, and how dare you question my activist intentions, even though I've been kind of nurtured within a culture that made me inevitably have these intentions, you know? So um, I think there's a lot of great ways to circle back to, to this research and, and how it helps us identify the, the way in which this we become saturated by these practices and demoralized by them. What you're saying makes me think about Walter Benjamin's work that we all were given in graduate school or undergrad, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, where he posits that the transformation in the nature of artwork is resulting from the conditions of technological or technical reproducibility. I wonder if we might be heading towards another reanalysis of his work in view of what we're discussing today, the bureaucratization of the processes and the economic incentivization of the processes of the art world and how this as itself inflected new genre, even artificially, because you say, oh, this is an art. And I agree. But then we go back to that age old debate of what is art. And you have throughout the 20th century, many theorists positing various definitions of art that even conflict. Remember the response to Dadaism. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is a toilet art? Is found art art? Are found objects art? I went to one of the last times I saw Vincent. He said, oh, I was just in an art show. You have to go. And I was like, really? You were in an art show? He says, yes, go to the Guggenheim. So I went. It was Tino Segal's This Progress. I show up and the Guggenheim, for those who've never been there, is this big spiraling, like inside of a snail shell, I guess. And I go and there's a little girl who looks just like she could have been out of Alice in Wonderland, who says, come with me. And we walk up the ramp. And she says, what is progress? And I'm sort of taken aback because I had no idea what to expect because Vincent didn't tell me what to expect. And I was like, oh. And so I start to talk. Well, as we go up the top of the Guggenheim, the age increases of my interlocutor. She hands me off to another person who is in his early teens, then another person in late teens, mm. early 20s, etc. Mm. And I'm going all the way up through life. And it was quite a beautiful experience. I'll never forget it. And I myself have worked on the issue of what is progress, especially through one of my favorite philosophers from India, Ashish Nandi, who infamously stated the progress of today are the traditions of tomorrow. So we begin to, as you said earlier, this bifurcation of good, bad, progress, regressiveness, tradition, modernity, etc. These are issues that in other cultural sites are handled 
I would say more thoughtfully, you mentioned not living in the States. And the first thing I've thought of when you said four or five months ago, I was like, well, your child wasn't shooting his or her teacher, right? Mm -hmm. Because we come from a country with incredible violence on the seat of a kind of hubris about the right to arms and that debate. Um, we we also have been caught in these last many years. If you go to CNN right now, I bet I'll find an article about Trump, I think, and I'm very far left, further left than a Democrat for sure. For all of his ills and his pussy grabbing, he knows what a pussy is. He knows what a woman is, you know, which is a strange thing for me to say because I have to make the choice as a woman between the one president in my lifetime who started the fewest wars or the rest. Mm. I have to make my choice between someone who pussy grabs, but hey, he knows what a pussy is, you know, like, and this is a very uncomfortable position for me. And yes, the discussion now goes to the right to have access to abortion or not, but we are living in really, really strange times where I don't know, Aaron, what the rights will be if we continue down what Scotland just went through the other week. Scotland now is going to and is already placing violent rapists in women's prisons. And when you sit with that for a minute, I mean, it just blows my mind. And it blows my mind that women's rights are now in these countries, especially in the U.S., and in Canada are being fought by people to the right of center. So when you say, what are these violent, you know, I agree. I don't think left and right has the same meaning at all. I don't even think they have meanings anymore. I think we're in this kind of fourth dimension of political saliency, mm. where your work intersects between the art world and anthropology. I'm wondering what can we learn from your work in the 90s? And are any of these countries that you've studied, including the generous contribution of your interlocutor, that day in 2020, Maria Lavievova, who embraced your criticism. Are we seeing more of a consciousness, a pushback to these kinds of implanted narratives through funding? Definitely, we're all more out in the open with how manipulated we are. I mean, the funny thing when I talk about this research, the usual, uh, there's like kind of a, a standard set of responses, especially from the West, especially from Americans and American liberals, um, which is uh, they shut down uh, with the moment you mentioned Soros's name and they believe you're handing them a conspiracy theory or the other responses. Yeah, but isn't everything manipulated? And yeah, that's that's sort of true. Everything is manipulated. It's important to remember that you're not the unique special person you want to believe you are based on all the choices you made. Um, and certainly your creative genius is not unique by a long shot. It's, uh, it's a mutation on a mutation, referencing the reference of a reference, whatever you wanna do. Uh, it's just don't believe ever for once that you've made something singular and that's never existed before on planet Earth. It's all results of influence. And, um, and so the reality of, uh, say this new media discourse uh, and what role it plays in artists' lives, well, yeah, look at the all the work that uh, the post-internet generation of artists has done with AI and technology. Um, they've signed up for that. They've opened their arms to that kind of manipulation where they're going to be used to help create interfaces and advancements of technology that are going to leave them in the dust and use their, their quote, data, their creative practice, and, uh, and, 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 and you know, step on them with it. Um, the, this reality of, um, you know, what do these things mean? Uh, 
I think like, uh, you know, it's hilarious listening to you because I'm like, oh yeah, what, what do we do about this? You know what we need is a, is an NGO. <laughs> <laughs> we need an NGO to, to come in, but in actual seriousness, um, we need independent anthropological observation. Um, humans need that. They deserve that. People get so weird when you, when you, you know, I do gonzo anthropology and, and I openly say to people, you know, that I do that and, uh, and people, but I do this whole thing of also play the American. I, and I say dude all the time and I'm, and I'm your buddy and it's not to be manipulative, but it does let you let me in a little bit easier. And, uh, and I mostly do my work with religious communities and, uh, because I'm interested in how they use art as a vehicle for spirituality. And I want them to show me their tricks. And then I do this in a very open-minded, very open empathy way without judgment where most anthropologists and most liberals, they come to uh, any other group through superiority. And that's a, that's a problem, you know, and that's, that's why anthropology is a problem. Uh, and of course there is a superiority in my position in that I am the observer, but I am, I am not coming with bad intentions to, you know, judge your values uh, and so forth. I just want to understand and I want to get to a position of understanding uh, where people are coming from with things. And I think we need more independent forms of anthropology that are not academically sanctioned, that, um, that, uh, but that do kind of have uh, the ability and the, uh, to, to walk in and help us better identify our patterns. You know, even the ability to have something that helps us better understand anti-Semitic call-out culture, which is such a vast and misunderstandable phenomenon within culture that is weaponized irresponsibly, that is meaningless if you really kind of break it down into its bits. Uh, and, and then of course, you know, uh, but of course is so specific to being about hatred towards a group. Um, you know, it's, it's, these are, that, that term alone deserves independent anthropology to help understand its value and its energy and how it's used and how to better understand it hygienically so we can better reckon with hate culture but we can also better reckon with how this thing is abused to create weird forms of agenda within culture and manipulate us uh, and 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 manipulate us in broad strokes you know that word is a spell that word is very simply a spell you name it Boom, and people have shifted course just by the mere naming of that spell. So, uh, and and I think like you know these are this is just what this would be a good start for you know how sick our culture is, and it's the West, you know, and it's and it's because of neoliberalism. Um, uh, we need to uh, we sadly need outside intervention almost. It's on it's bordering on that because our democratically elected. Uh, responsible parties, corporates, and whoever are only making it worse. They're only looking at it as a potential for profit to continue to turn these dials in a way that's in favor of them and not of our personal psychologies and and what have you. Um, it's a it's a it's a sad state of affairs in terms of how capitalism has turned into such a cannibalistic uh, buffet. Recently, there was a debate about a film that was made on gender critical feminists. They were invited to speak on Tucker Carlson, the filmmakers decided not to. I wrote publicly, I said, this is a very bad idea. No, but Tucker Carlson's a racist, he's a xenophobe, he's a homophobe. And I said, uh, 
uh, au contraire, <laughs> he's the only journalist who, out of all of the journalists that pushed and pimped for the Iraq and Afghani interventions, wars, illegal wars, he's the only one who said he was wrong. The only one. I have not yet come across one who said he got it wrong. Secondly, over the past three years, he has been covering the poverty of lockdown, working class issues, strikes. He has actually covered women's issues. He's spoken against homophobia within the gender critical, I'm um, sorry, within the gender movement. He's been the only person there. And yes, he's certainly right of most of us, but that does not, ergo, create a fascist KKK member, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I'm finding is amongst a lot of us on the left that these go-to scarecrows are still there. And we're not living in a rerun of Mississippi burning here. The right wing has come a long way to accede a lot of social change. I include the log cabin Republicans were a thing 20 years ago. There are many black gay conservatives. There are many gay Latino conservatives. And what the left does is makes these kind of red herring arguments about how we can't do that because it'll look bad on us. That's a right-wing channel. And I'm thinking, wait a sec. And I pointed out to people that the global war on terror was brought to us courtesy of Goldberg, Miller, the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the Atlantic. These were the primary culprits mm. in advancing an illegal war that ended up killing and displacing millions. So when we start to look at what's left and right, we can no longer say New York Times, good, uh, Fox bad. And these are valences that will always change because we're living, we're breathing. They, people change, institutions change, as you know. I'm wondering if you might speak to some of the challenges you've had in working with the right-wing institutions, the tactical media interventions you've made around your work. Well, yeah, thanks for asking. The, um, you know, it has to be said uh, that there is this... Um, you know, I have in my own approach to as a human, but in particular, I look at my, my, my job as a curator and an anthropologist to, to do these things, that when there are sensitive issues that we as a culture have a hard time speaking about, uh, and, and, you know, just to sum it up, like evil, uh, to talk about evil properly uh, and, and not give it like boogeyman ghost stories, um, I'm fascinated. And, uh, and I'm gonna go there uh, and I'm gonna go there hard, uh, especially if it makes people uncomfortable. And I, and I look at it as a kind of a form of embedding myself within these topics and not because I like evil, but because I think we are not doing ourselves a favor by you know, using, uh, by boogeymanning things. And, um, and so that's a way to say that when I heard about this museum uh, this right-wing contemporary art museum, as it was called by the New York Times, um, I saw in this uh, way in which it was described this effort to hide it uh, through dog whistles and language. And, uh, and, and, and as soon as you start to like openly think about those things, these games of language that are played by the media, you start to see them all the time. And uh, dog whistling is the easiest one. Um, and um, and so when I uh, when I see when I first learned about this museum, I saw it as a, a not as a something to avoid, but as an opportunity for understanding. Uh, because also I, I'm very clear on the notion that the worst thing we can have right now in this sectarian society we live in is dialogue, uh, speaking with the enemy, and all these things. People are 
deathly afraid of it. And it's liberals, honestly, that are the most afraid of it, that are going to have to share, that are going to have to break bread with the bad guy. And, uh, and they're the ones that need to, to grow up and, and do it, honestly. But, um, but the uh, opportunity I had when I saw it uh, to, to work with these guys was uh, uh, what I saw as a chance to understand what, what is everyone so afraid of? Everyone in my field, in the liberal left art field, seems to use the word fascist uh, so easily. Like they, they, like they know what they look like. And, uh, and, I, and I guarantee you most have never met a real fascist. And, uh, and so when you see this uh, institution that is quote run by fascists, um, I'm like, I wanna, I wanna know what that means. And I wanna know what they're doing with art, especially. Like that for me anthropologically is gonna be uh, data that if no one else is gonna look, I am. And, um, and so I saw that as a true opportunity to uh, create some understanding and uh, get to, to know who these people were and what their motives and intentions were with art. And then in particular with my exhibition when they asked me to remake it. And then, um, and that was the, 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 the curious introduction. Uh, but then there's this reality of what does it mean to actually work with them? And it's not that I'm just working with some uh, Tower of Grayskull, you know, doom squad. Uh, there, uh, there's the upper management, which was the right wing people that were installed by the Polish government or, you know, put in place, however it was. Um, uh, it's hard to know because these narratives are very controlled. Um, and, uh, but anyways, the, uh, uh, they run the top of the institution, the heads of departments kind of positions, but 80% of the museum is run by liberals who have been at the museum forever, some of them for 30 years. And, um, and so I, uh, coming in there, it wasn't that I just had this um, green light from the upper management. I had to do a thing to get to know everybody and get, all, get them all on my side because I'm not a right wing person. Um, these are also not my right wing that I know as I know them. Um, they're like a foreign right wing for me. And, uh, and then on top of that, it's not my liberals either. They're, they're a different kind of liberal than I'm used to. And so I didn't see any of them as my people. Um, I just tried to treat them all as art worlders and um, which I'm very good at, you know, cause I'm part of the global art world. And anyways, what you ended up having to do in this case though, was, uh, uh, was uh, honestly was uh, some backflips in um, human resources and motivational speaking to get everybody on board. Um, so I ended, ended up having like a lot of great opportunities to take what was a demoralized liberal majority and, uh, and, and tell them, you know, that I, you know, had expectations that were uh, going to remoralize them. Uh, and how do I mean that? Like they basically all saw their jobs as um, obsolete and uh, pointless in the face of what was a, a press culture and a, a Polish culture that uh, will never accept them again. And whatever you're going to do, nobody cares because nobody comes here anymore and blah, blah, blah. And all I was given as I started this uh, collaboration with the right wing castle was uh, um, just expect the worst. And, and so, you know, when you have that in mind, when everyone's expecting the worst, uh, I treat those as uh, what we can call opportunities or gifts. You know, if we're all expecting it, then that's, let's treat it like a present. 
And, um, and so I would uh, take these groups to, you know, and, and have private meetings with them. And, and I'd be like, you know, all these things that you're expecting that are the worst things that you could possibly imagine. Well, you've now had it happen a couple of times for you. Uh, let's call them traditions. Uh, these are cultural traditions that you're experiencing at this point. And I want you to understand that I see those traditions as goals, that I want you to hit those goals when we go and do this together, because we are going to be attacked uh, with this project. This project only results in negative feedback because sadly we don't have the, um, the benefit of a media that's gonna create a nuanced space for discourse. It's gonna be you know, uh, a, a very expectable negative feedback. Um, so for me, this was a, an incredible effort that kind of, I think, initiates this tactical media conversation where I was able to step in and uh, reconfigure the energy of this place and bring these people together, these groups that ultimately were diametrically opposed internally in the castle. The, I don't want to use the word hate, but they are uh, literally on either sides of the picket. And, um, and yet the right-wing people are their boss and the liberals are the uh, people that do all the work. And, um, and so, uh, but the, the experience opened up for me a lot of different uh, narratives about vulnerability and, uh, and how you can see uh, the, the, the nuances of each of these cultures, be it the liberal or the right-wing and, uh, and within all of it, the, the, the religious Catholic, uh, conservative Catholic Polish person. And, uh, and, and then at the same time, I'm making this exhibition, which is, uh, is what? It's an exhibition about institutional critique. It's an exhibition about socially engaged practice. It's an exhibition about art as propaganda. And, and I'm helping to create uh, mechanisms of visibility so we can see all these things. And, and within it all, I'm also trying to tell this story of tactical media. And so, um, so I knew um, I was going to be able to first of all, be given a carte blanche at, from the get-go. I knew no one was going to check me and what I was doing. And so I could not only bring in whatever art I wanted, um, but I could also do things uh, in a way that they weren't going to really understand what I was doing. And, uh, and this is where my practice with, you know, anthropology really comes into heavy play is that I work with a lot of different magic thinking cultures, magical thinking cultures, witches and, you know, shaman and so forth. And, uh, and when you understand the mechanics of magical thinking and, and play that through the language of art and the language of tactical media, you get this wonderful opportunity to play with uh, what I call semiotic shamanism uh, and, and in this particular and very loaded context, you know, which is a loaded in the sense that it's a right wing context. It's loaded in the sense that it's a this castle, it's this spooky castle that's technically had this purpose in the past of being this progressive bastion for you know contemporary art which is for the you know cultural vernacular cultural paradigm of voodoo unto itself and so um so i really treated the whole place like a like a laboratory for 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 tactical media and uh and that resulted in a variety of things both religious and spiritual but also political and uh, uh you know, playing with literal ideas of false flags, um, where I asked, uh, one of the things I did was, um, it's, it's a long story to go into the why I did this and the reference I'm making, but the, the false flag is a very important thing we talk about all the time in media. And, uh, and it's, also, it's just a very important tactic that's used by our governments and by the media to help manipulate consensus 
through uh, situational forgeries, uh, creating situations that we will inevitably believe on surface are this thing that we are told it is, and here's the evidence to support it. And then in fact, we find out later that there was no yellow cake in Iraq, or there was no, you know, whatever to make us do this enormous political gesture um, that swayed our consensus. And so that's called often a false flag, and the false flag is what's called an active measure. And so, I studied all kinds of active measure, uh, active measures within the history of Soviet KGB active measures and CIA active measures. And I knew that I could do these things as art, as performance, as sculpture, as whatever, and I'd be safe. I wouldn't get arrested um, because I'm like, this is a part of my show. My show is about this. How could you not accept this? This is uh, my show. And, uh, and so I got, I was able to get away with a lot of these things. Um, so fall, I Ray, I asked and one of them that was very sensitive was the false flag, um, which is originating in the way in which, um, uh, the term comes from a folklore that, uh, is in flag culture and naval and nautical flag culture. Uh, you have the surrender flag, which is the white flag. And, uh, and you raise that when you're in trouble and it brings in the help or, uh, or it calls off the battle to say that you can't fight anymore. And, uh, and if you use that improperly, that symbol of the white flag, if you use the surrender flag with bad intentions, meaning you don't use it to communicate in a very straightforward way that you surrender, then you are using what is called a false flag. And legend has it pirates would do that. They would raise the white flag as a way to bring in the enemy. And as soon as they were close, fire upon them. And, uh, and that was a, a false flag. And so what I did was I asked the Polish uh, administration, the right-wing guys, if I could take down the uh, enormous Polish flag that was flying in front of the castle and raise a white flag, which I brought. I brought a bunch of white flags to raise them around the castle because I thought, hey, this is technically a military structure. Let's embrace it. And, uh, and so I asked them, could I, could I take down the, the flag and put up a white flag? And, they were, and this was one of the first moments in my entire project, which was full of crazy shit that I was getting away with. This was the first time they said, no. They were like, absolutely not. No way are we gonna allow that. And that was when I realized they are very religious about this symbol uh, and what it means to fly it outside of this structure. Um, and then I was like, look, man, it's just for the photographs. I don't care if we fly it for the show or even for the opening. It's just, let me take it down for five minutes so I can take a picture. Um, and you know how Duchamp's urinal works. No one ever saw that thing in person. We all saw the Alfred Stiglitz photograph. Duchamp understood the media and the, and the, repro you know, the reproducible image as being more powerful than the object or the situation itself. So if it can be seen that I flew this flag, it will be known that I, this flag was flying and that's the reality. And they said, no, you cannot take down the Polish flag. And so I did these other things to help. I flew the flag outside of one of the turrets and I, uh, and I did a, a photo op where I hid the Polish flag with the white flag. Um, but other shit that I did, um, uh, I, did I, just, I sent a night letter, which is a form of propaganda. Um, uh, a night letter is a, an anonymous uh, piece of information that arrives at a journalist's uh, residence or desk. And it's a thing that's gonna break the case. Uh, like for example, Hunter Biden's laptop 
is a form of uh, a night letter um, that we don't know exactly where it came from. And on it, there's information that's gonna completely shift the narrative of the story. And so uh, one of the early moments of HR stuff I did with the pu public relations department is that, you know, I was like, what happens? What are some of those things that happen to you that are so upsetting with the way in which I can expect these upsets? You know, they're like, well, you know, something that always happens is there's a whistleblower. There's a whistleblower here at the castle who uh, is sending uh, insider information to the Gazeta de Borcha, which is the Soros funded uh, open society funded uh, newspaper there in Warsaw. And they, and they were like, yeah, somebody's sending insider stuff to these people and then they're breaking the story. And then that story becomes what the AP and everybody else puts on blast is a repeat of whatever the Gazette de Borcha people publish. So I was like, well, that's awesome. That means we've got a whistleblower that we can depend on. So how about this? How about I will send them my inside, my insider dossier, my special dossier about the exhibition that has all my notes, all my sweat, all my smell, all my everything. I'll, I'll even put special shit inside there that'll make them feel really like they got a special thing, all my maps, I'll put all of it in there. And I mailed that shit to the Gazette de Borcha people. Um, so they would have an anonymous uh, advance on the story. And, um, and then uh, and I did other things on top of that to, to manipulate these people um, uh, in terms of the press. But um, so I, I don't know, I, there's a whole laundry list of these things that kind of came out of what we call field work, ultimately. It was field work trying to understand the, these people, their fears, their patterns, their traditions. And then uh, what do these things mean for my story? Uh, because my story is a meta story, uh, in fact, about these things. So, and then it was, it allowed me the chance to glean a lot of really important data from field work that I could then apply actively in my uh, exhibition. Reading your entries online, I have not read the book. It reminded me of James Clifford's Anthropology of Anthropology. I'm sure you've Ooh. heard that before, but or no, maybe no, not. No, no. I rather like the way that you get at the institution itself, because as I said at the very beginning, this has echoes, not just because of the coincidental contribution Soros has made towards funding the whole gender identity narrative, which he has, but he's not the only one. You've got Pritzker, you've got loads of, of multi-million and billionaires who funded this. And there's been an open-ended psyops in Western culture over gender identity that is inescapable and quite troubling. You talk about the art focus on decolonization, but ironically, we've colonized ourselves. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you noticed this during lockdown, <clears throat> the first of many lockdowns in 2020, where you had all these Black Lives Matters protests. And anyone who questioned what was going on, anyone who questioned where's the funding, because that funding has disappeared. Uh, anyone who questioned BLM's alliance with quite dangerous institutes like the Aspen Institute is verboten persona non grata immediately. You even had Adolf Reed was <laughs> deplatformed from his own organization with the Socialists of America, where he was supposed to speak that year in Philadelphia, all because he said everyone's making claims that are not yet demonstrable in science, that African-Americans are somatically more susceptible to COVID, etc. He raised questions, asked for facts, and as a result, was basically called a racist, basically mm. called a right winger. And this is where we are, where anything you say, you'll see it all the time online, when the feminists say something about 
lesbians don't have penises or gender is not scientific. Uh, racist, you'll hear that. Racist or homophobe, all these kinds of five cent terms that we've thrown out because the interlocutor has nothing better up their sleeve. I find it's a sign of the times that we are now back at this Leotardian postmodern condition. I mean, he wrote that book in response to a worker's strike in Quebec, but here we are having to work out our own language games because it's all about language today, where we can use language to reshape reality. Let's not forget about the bricks and mortar of historical materialism. Let's not forget about all the things Marx has written about in great detail, especially something that overlaps with the right, such as people see the Southern Italians that protest against the immigrants as right-wing racists, when that what they don't see, often because it's a neoliberal tactic to say everything's racist, especially when you've got an income coming in, especially during lockdown. We saw that division too, who supported lockdown, who didn't. But these Southern Italians are not necessarily any more racist than the neoliberals who like having their Mexican nanny they can pay under the table. What is true is that immigration yeah, affects yeah. national worker compensation. And this is something Marx and Engels wrote about. It's not new. It's not right wing to discuss it. But how did the neoliberal class become so emboldened as to pretend that anyone criticizing the lowering of wages due to immigration become the proliferation of narratives through the NGOification of narratives? It's something that really should be overseen. You mentioned, you know, creating a new NGO, but definitely we need a watchdog because there is the creep of ideology that's happening. And there is the control by NGOs of unelected spaces. They were not elected to make these choices, yet you have the HRC in the U.S. espousing yeah. some rather nonsensical ideas. You have the ACLU, the ACLU, oh my God, Aaron, going against freedom of speech. They are now not in favor of the First Amendment. Yeah, and I mean, and then Palestine. I mean, come on. It's yeah, like, yeah. there's all, all these things that we could uh, say are amazing hypocrisies of, um, of, of this and uh, the strange you know, nature of, of how all these things have, have been permitted, um, all this power uh, in our environment. And yet they don't have to have any reckoning for themselves. I mean, the, uh, what, we were, what you were saying before about um, all this, you know, relates also, also, I think, to the this kind of pendulum of, uh, of, of civilization. You know, I, I'm not a believer that history repeats itself because that's impossible. We're going at a ever faster kind of rates of change uh, and cycles. Um, things are cyclical to some degree, but, and so I think we are looking at this way in which the pendulum is shifting, of course, away from globalization and all the the, pro the false promises of globalization. Uh, immigration is of course, uh, you know, and, and the way in which jobs have been farmed out for ever cheaper labor, all of that at the expense of the local. Um, you know, the this is a, this is the thing that globalization, uh, you know, I think, and especially in the Europeanization process, people have been left pretty empty handed in terms of how their communities are able to develop on their own. We're now dependent on different kinds of trade situations that are proving to be incompetent and uh, or financial situations that are not able to, to support themselves. And uh, and so what are we left with? Uh, ultimately, you know, the need to survive uh, is sadly not there with uh, the neoliberal project. And um, uh, it's in fact benefiting only from more precarity. 
and uh, and that's the sad sad reality of uh, again this capitalist uh, cannibalist buffet. Um, uh, so I think like you know we are, we are right to consider more tribal options, and I don't think those options necessarily have to be described as uh, in the nationalism is a bad word. Um, they're about, you know, us sustaining our communities and the health of our communities. Um, I think like there's there's a PR project to turn nationalism into an ugly, xenophobic, fascistic word um, where, you know, uh, similar to this way in which uh, we, uh, we privilege the use of the word oligarch for certain groups or we privilege the use of the word patriotism for certain groups. Um, you know, so they're uh, and that's because, um, you know, it goes against um, what is this this weird project that we've all signed up for. Um, the other, you know, and again, coming back to language and the weaponization of language, what's super interesting, honestly, if I can really go there, because we have touched on anti-Semitism, uh, is the way in which uh, crit criticizing globalization, criticizing neoliberalism, criticizing uh, these these projects has been called anti-Semitic. I think that is, should be a red flag to everybody that uh, there's a there's something that's being occluded uh, from public view here. If we're going to go and openly call these things anti-Semitic um, uh, or anti-Americanism, uh, I, I mean, you, there's any number of ways in which you see this this term used, and you're like, well, why? Why can't I be against American imperialism? Why can't I be against neoliberalism? Why can't I be against globalization? Why do you get to call it anti-Semitic? I think there's something that's terribly wrong with society right now and its inability to uh, to reckon with itself, and that we're and then and then we're given these terms of short circuitry to avoid looking because if you look, then you you've clearly got a moral problem that's greater than um, the actual financial problems that you have. Um, which is radical. Yesterday, Richard Dawkins tweeted this. I disagree with what you said. Therefore, what you said is hate speech. My thoughts have changed on this over the years. Uh, 20 years ago, I was, yeah, hate speech legislation. Today, I think it's now quite a dangerous thing in the sense of who gets to decide what that line is? Because mm -hmm. we have entered into this terrain of disagreement being hatred. Just a few days ago, Someone tweeted a letter they got from the Met Police in London. They used on a tweet the British word for pedophile because now pedophilia has been completely academized into mm. a minor attracted person. And we all want... That's not real though, really. I mean, you're saying that that is now, uh, that the word pedophile is used as a hate speech word and that MAP is now the, the necessary way to describe these things? That's not true, right? This is not the first time this has happened. I have uh, interviewed Kelly Jaquin, who's been on the show now twice. She's a woman's rights campaigner in Britain. And she had the police visit her, I believe, two, two and a half months ago, because she criticized pedophilia. They showed up at her mm. door. This has been ongoing in the UK. This goes back to Pi. It goes back to many kinds of political organizations over the past four decades. I would like to think, no, this isn't real. That was my, your reaction was my reaction, but this is happening. And it's quite mm -hmm. worrisome to me where now criticism is hatred. Uh, conversely, I had a feminist last week tweet back to me something like, well, that publication runs loads of anti-woman propaganda. And I said, and that is called free speech. We have to allow it all, <laughs> you know, and I think people have mistaken that free speech means anything I agree with. 
Well, that, I mean, that's the that's the funny thing about this story. You know, I'm sorry to always bring it back to the Soros thing, but it's like what I'm doing is decolonizing socially engaged practice. And, uh, and, and for some reason, that's not OK, uh, because people need socially engaged practice to conveniently and holistically agree with their agenda. And when you suddenly see the socially engaged practice as a manipulated thing and your agenda is a very manipulated thing, it hurts. It's a very painful thing. But these things, social engaged practice is not supposed to feel good either. People forget that because the liberal mindset, the neoliberal mindset has made it all comfortable that contemporary art is going to serve this very specific set purpose of propaganda that's going to holistically serve your agenda, you're suddenly outraged when it doesn't. When you suddenly have, for example, a right-wing contemporary art museum using socially engaged practice to decolonize their own issues that don't necessarily conveniently agree with your own. And this is, this is a, and of course we, um, and this is because we've reached this end game of whatever post-structuralism has given us, uh, because no one's allowed, again, to watch the watchmen. No one's allowed to use this language on itself. Uh, decolonizing the decolonizer is seen as taboo. Uh, and, and we should ask ourselves why. Like, instead of, instead of outrage, instead of being so offended, you should ask yourself, why is that outrageous? Why is it outrageous that I decolonize this language that the Soros Center for Contemporary Art gave us? Why is it anti-Semitic to decolonize that language? These questions need to be answered. They are fundamentally borderline primitive um, uh, that we uh, can only just respond with, uh, yeah, criticism is hatred or whatever. Um, there, there's, something, there's something fundamentally wrong with society if this is how we respond when our own institutions can't be reckoned with. Um, there's a, there is a problem. And um, so I, I don't know uh, what the answer is. I, I would again say we need an NGO that's an independent NGO uh, that is an NGO to look at NGOs. But all, you know what's so interesting is all the time when you see that stuff, you know, uh, I mean, so many of the arguments you've given me and the positions that they represent, you know, they, they almost create an automatic um, shutdown in uh, perception. You know that these are these are already weaponized uh, forms of language and topics. So to say that there's an, there's an, a watchdog of looking at NGOs, people will automatically be suspicious. Oh, it's probably a right wing group, uh, or it's probably a you know it's you know there's this uh, so there is so there is this need to have a, a strange form of transparent uh dialogue to lay these systems bare uh because people only look at criticism again like you said as hatred uh as a as an agenda driven phenomenon that's uh purpose is not holistic or good or well-intentioned or I, I, and and i you know uh, I, I i really hesitate to use ideas for the good because i don't believe that that good is a is a universal uh, thing but anyways, our, our systems need to be um, to deal with some accounting that goes against their will. Given the current terrain, I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal piece that just came out, which this is because of the two lawsuits that have been undertaken by Missouri and Louisiana, where now we see, this is really shocking, the White House's director of digital media basically instructed social media giants as to what to allow on its platform regarding the vaccine. Now, of course, 
they didn't have the authority to do so. But the fact that this even happened, this should make people really question their media. Because in this era where there's a lot of new media representation, there's a lot of independent media out there. And I urge people all the time. I have to, I read CNN. I, I find it ridiculous if I have to read one more piece about Harry these days. They must have 20 going up a day. Um, but so too does the BBC, by the way. So too does the New York Times. And I think it behooves us. And I told one of my readers on Twitter last week with this criticism of a writer who critiqued the gender critical movement in the UK saying we need to question the cost effective value of all these legal cases instead of going after this organization in Scotland, which might have resulted in a more favorable response because right now, gender identity has passed in Scotland, which pits women's rights against men's rights in a horrific way if you're in a prison, in a shelter, etc. So why is it that people are reading the media today, even beyond the art world, people want to have reification of what they already believe. It's almost as if we read the news or turn on the television to see a reverberation of our own thoughts. And that's, to me, not a very healthy way of approaching media, nor should it ever be, because isn't the idea of news sort of in the word news, that it should be new and different and that will change, right? All of this is so important to think about for what's wrong. Um, and yet at the same time, I, I don't know where we're going to, like, I, I, I will, I, sadly, I always base all these conversations off of uh, chats I have with my dad, who's a diehard boomer liberal. And, um, and I love him. And he's a great kind of compass for me for understanding, you know, where the line is and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, he is somebody who has diehard faith in media. And, and I think the, um, I think what we get uh, ultimately uh, and what we need are things like the Andrew Callahan, you know, there, I don't know if you've seen his recent thing that's happened, uh, the, 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 This Place Rules, uh, which is on HBO Max and it's all about the January 6th riots or whatever insurrection. And, um, and, uh, and he's a gonzo journalist and and without a political agenda, but his agenda is ultimately to reveal the problematics of media, where media is today and perception management. And uh, and the media is, is, is super up in arms about the whole, his whole project because he's kind of like this 25 year old uh, frumpy stoner type and he's taken them for a ride, man. Uh, it's awesome to see the result of what his thing has done. Uh, even though it's not like healed or done anything to maybe better understand uh, January 6th beyond the spectacleization of it, uh, it's uh, it's ultimately I think the, pro the the project isn't about that. It's it's definitely about um, bringing our media to account for its uh, creations of uh, echo chambers and hysteria, and and ultimately even maybe needing to be accused for somehow being responsible for what's happened with January 6th and with some major global events. You know, the media is, um, even hate crimes. I think there's a question I have of like how hate culture, um, you know, we can argue that hate exists independently within the person. And, and again, this is already suggesting that everybody's a unique special individual with their own special, you know, unique upbringing and set of values and choices with those values and all that shit. But when you're bombarded by your media of, um, 
you know, hate related uh, rhetoric, uh, be it the self-preservation from the, the hateful uh, or whatever, there's still this effort to indoctrinate people in the language of hate that's happening within the media. It's whether they think they're doing it for the, the good of, 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 of legibility of hate, I think they are actually creating literacy of, of hatred. That's not just about um, uh, this, this, the ability to choose the right path, but it's, it's indoctrinating people with hate. And I think the, AC, uh, the Anti-Defamation League does this too. I don't think their purpose, which is to help save us from hate, uh, is real. I think their, their purpose is to manage and uh, uh, manage the perception, conception, and uh, deployment of, of hate um, and, and how hate it can be you know, used and understood. Um, and, and it deserves, again, uh, oversight uh, for, you know, and we don't collect data on these things enough. Like the, the you know, I'm going to say something fucked up, but the Asian hate phenomenon that happened two years ago, um, which suddenly doesn't exist anymore. Um, you don't hear about it anymore, uh, which is fascinating. Um, that is argued to have originated with Trump, you know, talking about the China virus and all these things. Well, people fail to remember that the cover of every single economist and every New York Times and every single anything in the media was xenophobic for the last decade, uh, afraid of China usurping our place as the global power in the West. So when you're constantly bombarded with xenophobic frontline headlines, and then, uh, and then you have Trump literally acting as a straw man uh, for, you know, now he's the guy that helped verbalize this rhetoric of hate. But what was even more interesting for me, uh, because this hate shit did happen, it's not that it didn't happen, uh, but what was even more interesting for me is that I watch awful, you know, Reddit threads on like, if you wanna look at this stuff manif manifest in real time, it's called actual public freakouts as the name of the thread. And you see there where people actually deliver their, their hate and violence. And, uh, and what you were seeing in relationship to the stories that would be reported on the media was, was not acts of, of hatred from white supremacists to Asians. It was often from, from other people of color uh, in a majority of the cases. And yet the way the media would report on them uh, to fit their narrative, they would leave out the, uh, the, the, hate, the hate crime person's uh, ethnic identity when it didn't fit their narrative. And then when it was a white person, it was a white person. And then, and then you, what you also felt, I felt, because of somebody who consumes a shitload of media, that mentioning it leads to more of it, you know? So it's like the, um, there's this way in which um, uh, it's, it's hyperstition is what we call it. Hyperstition is real, you know? If you, the more you mention it, the more it occurs. Uh, humans will start to become bottled and manifest it, you know? Uh, and so, and one can argue, well, that's because that person is a racist or is hateful. But when your media is bombarding you every day with hate-filled rhetoric, even though it's telling you and educating you on what hate looks like, uh, there's something about it that's uh, chicken or the egg territory. Yes, and what does hate mean? Because I think we've sanitized the meaning. I'll tell you what's hateful. It's YouTube demonetizing its mm. contributors because they're putting out, and I'm thinking of the Dark Horse podcast with uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang. they've been demonetized. That's the way they live. That's hateful. 
I think mm -hmm. telling people to starve and not be able to survive is hateful. And that's where progressivism in air quotes and woke culture has arrived at. And I've had this discussion with other fellow homosexuals. I almost prefer, and I do prefer, the outright, forthright homophobe. I remember walking through Brooklyn in the late 80s and, you know, men would stare if I was holding hands with a lover. But I prefer that over suck my female dick, as I've had so many times, or rape and death threats, as I've gotten over the past decade writing on this issue. And the reason is clear. We have simply been culturally conditioned to understand hate. People still in America think of KKK pointy hats. This is unbelievable that we've been put on a rinse and repeat of Mississippi burning. But that's not actually what's going on within the Republican Party today. <laughs> and the fact that this has been disseminated by the likes of Rachel Maddow and her nightly screamouts is troubling to me. The media has been propagandizing its own scarecrows. So we're in this kind of the snake eating its tail mm -hmm. paradox. And I, I do worry because when you said at the beginning and another few times during your discussion of the art world with these pop-up spaces in Eastern Europe, this isn't art. Well, then what is art and where does this leave us today? We're now at the beginning of 2023. What is hope for the art world if we have been socially programmed in and out of the art world? Well, I, I'll tell you, uh, I, can, I can answer that. Uh, there is, a, I, I believe that um, we are looking at an obsolescing fad. Um, art as we know it, contemporary art as we know it is, is pretty new. Um, art that, uh, and I mean art that's away from its uh, servile function as a, you know, a straightforward uh, illustration of propaganda for like socialist realism of the church. Um, Art's aboriginal function for human beings is as a vehicle for spirituality. And it is a communication technology for energies that we don't understand coming from the mind, coming from the body, uh, coming from our environment. It is literally a tool for divination. Uh, and yet we have weaponized it as this um, messenger for politics. And, uh, and these uh, ideas of art for how it deconstructs culture and language and political and power structures, um, it's, it's kind of reached its end game. It's reached its end game, what art can offer technology, um, you know, because AI is essentially off and running with the uh, creativity that it's harnessed as, you know, from its free-for-all from the internet and from the artists that were willing to pimp themselves out to it. And, um, and so you ultimately are left with a communication technology that's on the verge of uh, not really having that same value. Because once we've taken away the spiritual power of art, um, its purpose of uh, uh, what I would say its real purpose, uh, you ultimately have this thing right now that's serving what, what, what purpose? Uh, narcissism for identitarian uh, mirrors or... Um, I, I really don't know how to how to see a future in art, especially when, um, you know, you have to look at the demographic values of it for uh, older, rich generation of people, rich white people, art is painting. And for young people, it is, uh, you know, memes. So um, there, there's, 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 there's a, there's a disconnect that's enormous. And it just 
proves that what I'm saying ultimately that that this thing that we're being that museums have sprouted up all, everywhere um, that are there to preserve these analog objects with enormous value that nobody cares about except for rich people. Um, and then the the younger stuff, the contemporary stuff, the the media based stuff, is literally propaganda. Um, it's like it's it's pretty straightforward uh, the way that art programming looks in in museums. It's the expensive painting is for the market, and the the video shit is is propaganda for the the masses, and uh, and they're both propaganda ultimately. So I don't know uh, what is the future of art. I think again, you know, uh, having more people like myself. Uh, coming in and being allowed to do some uh, some good work with it, um, because it's not that my whole project and my work as a curator and an anthropologist is all about this uh, Eastern Europe thing. Uh, this for me is a case study in how we can visualize the the directionalization of this material um, in groupthink settings and in societal and hysterical ways towards political agendas. But my true mission as a as whatever I am here on earth for is to help understand this other energetic role of art. And uh, and I wish that, you know, more of the industry would see itself in that potential rather than constantly looking in a, a cheap circus mirror.